Hey guys, Brooke here. We're here on a non-release day to give you a little extra 13. Right after this, we have a double feature of two of our bonus stories from Patreon. Our patrons get at least one extra story a month, and we wanted to share a sample of what those stories are like. So you know the drill. Sit back, turn down the lights, and now, on with the show. From the Lighthouse by Simon Kewen. Narrated by Ian Epperson. Samuel Tremaine shivered as he stood on the outside deck of Black Rock Lighthouse. He shivered, and not only from the cold. Fifty feet below him, the green sea roiled and seethed. The wind whipped it into a fury, sending the swell surging and clashing against the tiny scrap of rock that was his home. When the wind struck black rock like this, the lighthouse boomed and shook. And even up here, you could feel the prickle of ocean spray on your cheeks. A ferocious storm was running at him. It filled the sky south and west, banks of angry purple cloud. It seemed to be gathering the waters into its arms as it came, only to hurl them at the lighthouse. It wasn't the force of the storm that made him shiver, though. The building had stood on this lonely outcrop for many years, solid stone built on solid rock. No, it was the faint voices he heard that sent dread trickling through him. He'd been inside, reading through the logs of former keepers, attempting to piece together the lost fragments of his family's past. And they'd come to him, faint but unmistakable cries of anguish from outside, calls for help from the water, a sound that no sailor or ex-sailor could ignore. As quickly as his old legs would allow him, he climbed the spiral steps to the deck at the top of the lighthouse to scan the sea for wreckage. He had his little rowing boat lashed near the door at ground level. He could venture out and rescue any shipwrecked sailors caught in those angry waters. But he could see nothing. There was no capsizing wreck, no spars slipping beneath the waves, no bodies in the water. He walked the complete circuit. To the north, the solid ground of the main coastline was fading away, washed into the fog by the coming storm. The cries were gone, though. It was possible he'd imagined them. These days, he often found he slipped into slumber, into dream, and memories of his years on the ocean, they played through his mind. Like any sailor, he'd seen his share of tragedy. There was still a good hour before sunset, but he lit the great kerosene lantern anyway. He wouldn't take any chances. Perhaps what he'd heard was some harbinger or siren warning him of tragedy to come. He'd seen many a strange thing in his years at sea. The flame within the lens housing began to roar, giving off its familiar chemical stench. Soon, 
the beams would be arrowing through the storm. The pattern of five flashes telling any skipper which lighthouse was near. He liked the old-fashioned way the light worked. Most were diesel-powered these days, and more and more were automated. That Blackrock hadn't been converted was part of its appeal and the reason he'd come. That and the family tradition of it. He'd roamed these seas for many years. He was there as sail gave way to steam. And he wasn't ready to retire to the land quite yet. This lonely fragment of rock, half a mile offshore, it gave him a halfway house, a kind of stepping stone. It was the best of both worlds. He made one more circuit of the platform, and then he stepped down to the radio room to report what he'd heard to the shore. The radio was old too, the signal crackly and faint. The squalls of noise coming from it rose and fell as if they were the very waves themselves. It was often like this during a fierce electrical storm. He could be cut off for days, a fact that he rather enjoyed. He tried the radio. Trinity House, this is Blackrock reporting in. A fuzz of noise was his only response. As he strained to pick out words from the noise, he fancied he could hear a voice of sorts there, a voice in the static, but he couldn't make out the words. He tried again. Trinity House, this is Blackrock. Another wall of static. Perhaps he made out the word over in the response. He was about to try one more time when he heard a pounding on the door below. He sat for a moment, listening, confused. There could be no one at the door. The pummeling of the waves on the ancient woodwork, that's what it had to be. But then the sound came again, sharp and desperate. Someone demanding to be let in. He turned off the radio to save the battery that powered it and the lights on the stairs. Then, he hurried as quickly as he could down the three flights of stairs to ground level, down to sea level. Sailors in the water, that had to be it. He'd miss them from up top, but they'd manage to avoid the jagged rocks and haul themselves to the lighthouse. He had to help them. The double doors at the base of the building were bolted shut, not only to keep any person out, but to prevent the wind from blasting the doors open. As Tremaine fumbled with the locks, another great wave crashed into the lighthouse, sending the solid stone shaking. A dribble of water crept under the door at his feet. He heard another cry from outside, muffled and wordless. Once again, the thumping of a fist on the outer door. The bolts were rusting in the salt air. He really needed to oil them. Finally, he slid the bolts loose, and holding his breath against the blast of the storm, he hauled the outer door wide open. Spray and wind lashed into his face, making it hard to see, hard to breathe. 
There was no one there. He was alone on that scrap of jagged rock. The red and white stripes of the lighthouse behind him, and the angry lashing sea all around. He stepped around the perimeter of the building, keeping one hand on the iron rail at all times, looking for bodies in the water. The salt spray stung his eyes. Still, there was nothing. Was he too late? Had some poor shipwrecked sailor been there and then sucked back into the water even as his old fingers had struggled with the bolts? He called out into the wind, but there was no response. Overhead, the beams of light made solid bars in the gathering gloom. He completed the circuit, returning to the door. His little rowing boat was still there, lashed on its bows to the side of the lighthouse. He thought about putting out in it, searching for bodies, but he knew it would be futile. He'd only be risking himself in the ferocious swell. Clumps of seaweed made the rock slippery beneath his feet, the rot of them mixing with the salt in his nose. He kicked the weed aside and saw a sliver of timber. Driftwood often got thrown up onto black rock. He lifted it up to study it. It wasn't driftwood. It was a fragment of hull from some old wooden ship. There was no doubt about it. There were letters painted on it, faint. He could only make out a few of them. They spelled out V-I-A-T-H. The waterlogged wood had been in the ocean for a long time. He hurled the fragment back into the sea. And then he returned inside. He needed to make the doors fast before the full might of the storm struck. The wind fought him at every inch, and he had to put all of his weight into the effort, leaning hard as he bashed on the bolts to slide them into place. Finally, he had them, and he was safe. In that moment, the electric lights flickered. This battery needed replacing too. He had candles and lanterns. He should light them before the full darkness came. But before that, he tried to report to shore again while he still had power. As he set off, he noticed something odd. There were wet footsteps. How was that possible? He hadn't come back inside. Yet, there they were, heading for the stairs. He called up. Hello? But there was no response. Tremaine climbed the steps, peering upward into the gloom. Halfway up, the wet footsteps faded. He called out again, but his only response was the boom and whistle of the gale. He climbed to the top of the lighthouse, looking in on the living quarters, the radio room, the galley, the room where the logs were kept, and finally, outside on the deck. There was no one there. He was going mad. He shook it off. The footsteps had to be his. He was chasing shadows. A life at sea meant that he didn't scare easily. But, old fool that he was, he was letting himself get spooked. 
The sea all around the lighthouse was a seething, spitting cauldron. He tried the radio again, and this time managed to get through the atmospheric disturbances to reach Trinity House. Please repeat, Black Rock. You heard voices? There's a ship. A ship's gone down nearby. Are you sure they weren't gulls calling, Black Rock? I know fucking gulls when I hear them, and I know people. This is people. Any sign of wreckage? No, none. All right, stay there, Black Rock. Tremaine waited while the operator on the other end consulted with someone. The lighthouse shook as another wave slammed into it. The voice came back, a tone of command in it. Blackrock, this is Coningsby. We have no record of a merchant vessel in your area. Are you seeing a storm? Yeah, a big one. Southwesterly. The larger ships we know about have all put into port. Uh, What you're seeing must be something smaller. A fishing vessel? Please confirm that you can see survivors in the water. No, but I heard them. You heard them? It sounded ridiculous, now that he said it out loud. Still, it was best to report any event to shore. Saving lives was all that mattered. Yeah, they were calling out to me from the waters. More muffled conversations came through the radio. The background fuzz of noise rose and fell. Finally, Coningsby spoke again. Blackrock, is this some kind of a joke? A joke? No. I don't understand what you mean. You are aware of what day it is, yes? It's Tuesday. Why does that matter? I mean the date. It's October 31st. It's damn Halloween, man. Look, I'm sure it must be a lonely life out there on Blackrock, and maybe this seemed like an amusing joke to play, but I can assure you that none of us are laughing, especially given the record of the place. You, of all people, must know what I'm talking about. Leviathan, man. I see now that putting you out there on your own wasn't such a good idea. Perhaps it's time you came back to live amongst people, yeah? Coningsby's words made no sense. What did coming ashore have to do with anything? He'd never sailed on a vessel called Leviathan. I'm telling you, there are voices, and someone pounded on the door. Tremaine decided not to mention the wet footprints. You're not sitting on some main street, Tremaine. You're half a mile out into the sea. It's pretty unlikely someone turned up for tea. I'm telling you, I heard what I heard. Well, did you look outside? Of course I fucking did. There's no sign of anybody. All right, enough of this, Tremaine. What, did you think you could scare us with your little prank? I'm telling you, I don't know what you're talking about. Preserve your battery. Call back if there's a genuine emergency. But otherwise, The rest of the sentence was lost in a fuzz of noise. Tremaine did as he was told. He switched off the device. The glow of the valves from within faded. The storm, it roared again. Then, the electric lights in the stairwell flickered and died. He had his lantern nearby. His fingers trembled as he worked with the match to get it lit. Finally, he did. He turned the little brass dial to full illumination and stood. The lantern sent hulking shadows dancing around the white walls of the radio room. 
Leviathan. He never sailed on her, but the name was familiar from somewhere. He'd go check the logs, find out what this Coningsby had been talking about. The pounding sound came again at that moment, and this time, it was coming from above. The hatch up at the outer platform. Someone was up there, several people judging by the sound of it. How could that be? His imagination was getting the better of him. Sound carried oddly in these curved rooms. The wind whistled through the gaps in the windows. That's all it was. That's what it had to be. He climbed once more to the room where the lighthouse's archives were kept. If there were answers anywhere, they'd be here. A bookshelf on the curving wall held 30 or 40 tomes containing the daily reports of lighthouse keepers going back to the early days of Black Rock. He spent his days searching them for clues to his family's past, wondering about the hints and stories that had been passed down to him. Another mournful cry echoed from the walls. He ignored it and set about his work. He had one book out on a little wooden desk where he studied it with a magnifying glass. It was there where he'd left it. But on the red cover, there was a mark that he didn't recall seeing. It was unmistakable. The print of a hand. He ran his finger over it, and it was wet. He put his finger on his lips and tasted salt. He almost turned back ran away at that moment, but instead, he opened the book. He needed to know. His fingers were shaking. He leafed through the pages, his gaze passing rapidly over the log entries, pinned in a series of hands. Many of them were hard to read. Finally, he saw it. Leviathan. All hands lost. Last day of October, 1848. Wrecked on Black Rock. There it was. That's where he'd seen the name. Following the entry, there was a blank page and then words written in a fresh hand. A report by some inspector. Tremaine read the entry with mounting horror. Leviathan had splintered on the rocks because the light hadn't been lit. The keeper at the time, drunk and oblivious, had slept through the storm, failed to light the lamp, and Leviathan, running in for port, had seen no warning that it was dangerously close to the rocks. All hands were lost, 32 crew and officers. It was the name of that lighthouse keeper all those years ago that sent alarm thundering through him. This was his family shame. The shame that his father and grandfather hadn't talked about. The spelling of the name was different, but that often happened in these old records. There could be no mistaking that the lighthouse keeper had been guilty. The findings were clear, and his name was Tobias Tremaine. He'd been thrown out of the service for gross dereliction of duty. 
Just then, more cries echoed off the walls, and then he could hear them again, down by the water. They sounded to his old ears as if they were coming from inside the lighthouse and outside all at once. He read it again, all hands lost, 32 crew and officers. He had to get out. He had to get to shore. His heart was thundering. He half ran, half fell down the stairs, expecting to meet the gaze of drowned sailors at each turn. Fumbling against the bolts again, he threw the outer door open. The storm raged around him, furious now, but he paid it no attention. He had to get away. He had to reach solid ground. He unlashed the little boat and set it into the seething waters. The main coastline was half a mile to the north, and no dead sailors could come for him there. He rowed as hard as he could, fighting the pull of the waves as they tried to dash his little wooden boat against the rocks. Tremaine fled from the lighthouse. The mountainous sea threw him around, and in a moment, he was disoriented. He could no longer tell which way was north, which way was to the coast. But he kept at it. He kept pulling. He had to get away. Just then, the first hands reached up from the depths. They clutched at him, even as he fought against the furious waters. From the Lighthouse was written by Simon Kewen. Narrated by Ian Epperson. Coningsby was Mason Amadeus. This is The Angel Coffin, written by Catherine England, narrated by Nate Dufort. My world turned on its head when I was six years old and my father bought a car. It would change our lives, he said, make things easier. We were the first on our street to get one. True to my father's prediction, the machine did change my life. It had flung me through an open window as it left the road at high speed and toppled over an embankment. I'd scrambled to my knees, dazed and bruised, but otherwise unhurt. Through a dizzy blur, I watched the machine end its death roll by wrapping itself around a tree, killing both my parents. Neighbors looked after me until welfare people came to their house to collect me. The only relative my authorities could trace was a grandpa, my father's father, who agreed to take me in. My second ride in a car was also memorable. Huddled on the back seat, bumping and lurching over dirt roads, desolate scenery winding endlessly past my window. No rows of houses with people mowing lawns or calling to each other over fences. 
No one walking their dogs or pushing strollers. No children riding bikes or playing in the street. Just bare hills with a sorry-looking street here and there defying the monotony. Or a clump of shrubs cowering by the roadside. A middle-aged woman was responsible for me until the handover to my grandpa. Hours into the journey, our driver nodded sideways at an untidy collection of buildings surrounded by a barbed wire fence. Midway, he said. The woman looked out the window. Why is it called that? Don't know. But they say it's midway between life and death for anyone who ends up there. Seems funny sending a kid to live with a... He stopped himself just in time. A what? I wanted to ask. But the adults were tired and irritable from the long drive and not inclined to make conversation with a child. Each time I'd opened my mouth, they'd ignored me. Eventually, we turned off the main road and onto a rough track that wound listlessly toward a tiny shack, wavering in the heat haze like a mirage. As its outline became clearer, it looked to me like a giant hand had dropped it from the sky, then pushed it all back together until it stood more or less evenly. The driver honked the horn several times as we approached, and I craned my neck for the first glimpse of my grandpa. Dressed in white trousers and singlet, Marcus Crowley appeared like a ghost apparition behind a screen door, then stepped onto the veranda. He was a shriveled shell of a man with a creased face and pale skin that hung in folds around his neck and arms. Spidery wisps of gray hair curled around the shiny baldness of his scalp. There was an exchange of paperwork and signatures at a rickety table on the porch. Then the woman and driver left. Their tempers greatly improved now that they had discharged their duty. So, you're Saul, Grandpa stated, finally addressing me. Look like your father. Well, I suppose. You'd better come inside. I got your room ready. The shack was a sparse affair. A living room with a sagging sofa and a table for meals. A kitchen so tiny I could barely turn around without scraping my shoulders on a wall. A bedroom for Grandpa. And a bedroom for me. There was an outhouse in the backyard. My room was as bare as the rest of the house. A bed, a closet, a chair. But it was clean. You hungry? Grandpa asked from the doorway as I hoisted my bag onto the bed. I shook my head. The gnawing pain in my gut had nothing to do with hunger. Grandpa thrust his hands into his pockets. Well, I'll leave you to it then. I sat next to my bag and stared out the window at the silence. It was at school that I learned about my grandpa's past. The school building was another shack, but a larger, more solid one about a half-hour ride on horse. Trees planted beside it gave it some shelter from the midday sun. One teacher tried to cater to the diverse abilities of 20 children ranging in age from 5 to 14. 
after dropping me off at the school each day. Grandpa continued to the prison where he worked as a handyman. He left in time to collect me each afternoon. This pattern continued with such regularity, I hardly noticed the years passing. When I was about ten, one of the older boys was happy to share something he'd only just discovered. Until then, I had liked school. I was smart, but as far as possible tried to keep this to myself. I was in a class with many older but less competent children, and in a small community, it isn't wise to appear to be a cut above one's neighbors, either materially or mentally. I'd been sitting with my back against a tree, eating the sandwich my grandpa had packed when a red-headed boy swaggered up to me. Three other boys jostled each other as they tagged along at his heels, fueled by cruel whispers. Their eyes glistened with anticipation. One way older children got their kicks was to stir up us younger ones. If it wasn't for the fact that Red Maynard was built like a wrestler, his carrot top would have been enough to single him out for some unwanted attention. Your pop's a murderer, he informed me evenly. He tucked his thumbs into his belt and waited for a reaction. A glance over his shoulder brought support. Yeah. You're living with a murderer. Murderer's grandson? Your pop's a criminal. The words dug into my skin like splinters. I'd been on friendly terms with the other boys, and it shocked me that they'd turn on me so easily. I tried to swallow my mouth full of food, but it lodged in the back of my throat like a lump of rubber, and I coughed it up. Liar! I screamed, hurling myself at Red. I hadn't cried once in all the long years since my parents' death, hadn't ranted or raged or cursed the unfairness of life, but being picked on so unjustly, the pent-up frustration and anger surged from my body and found a target in the older boy. But anger wasn't enough. Red easily blocked my punches and threw me onto my back and sat astride my chest. You know it's hereditary, don't you? Red taunted as he pinned my arms to the ground. It's in them little chrono-what's-its we learned about in biology. Chromosomes, you ignorant turd, I said. I hawked and spat. Red wiped spittle from his face. Urged on by the others, he demonstrated how brawn beats brains any day. It was my first fight, one of many where I tried to defend my grandpa against something I knew nothing about. My grandpa had been an inmate of Midway for 40 years after killing a man in a brawl. He hadn't meant to. They were both drunk and it could just as easily have been my grandpa who died that night. But the court didn't see it that way and sentenced him to life in prison. The day he shamed our family by being sent to Midway was the day he ceased to exist to them. When he turned 70, the warden put in a good word and he was paroled. But he had spent most of his life in prison. He knew little else and didn't think he could survive without the bricks and bars that shielded him from the outside world. Grandpa had asked the warden to let him stay on at the prison, working for his keep. The warden and him came to an arrangement. Grandpa would be paid a modest wage 
in return for his handyman and carpentry skills. When he agreed to take me in, he had to confront his fears and rent the cheap dilapidated but blissfully isolated mining shack. He knew a boy couldn't live at Midway. Grandpa's position required that he make the coffins for inmates who died in prison. He was also the gravedigger. Midway housed only the worst offenders, and its guests rarely walked out through the front gates. When epidemics swept through the region, there was little anyone could do. The town doctor was run off his feet tending law-abiding citizens, and had little time for those already on death row. When an inmate died, through sickness or by court order, Grandpa transported the coffin on horse and buggy to the cemetery outside the prison. The graves were behind a hill, out of view of the prison and the towers. There were no morgue facilities, so bodies were buried quickly. Relatives were hard to contact, and most couldn't get to the isolated Midway facility in time for the burial. Of those who made it, only a handful replaced the wooden cross with a stone block. The only other person who regularly attended burials was a chaplain. Grandpa pulled me out of school soon after I turned 12, and I didn't try to fight him. I was tired of the other children and their opinions about me and Grandpa. The sooner you learn to make a living, the better, he told me. Grandpa had become as much a part of the prison as the stone and steel holding it up. Two guards opened the gates each day when they saw our buggy approaching. Others held their rifles ready in case anyone attempted to escape. If by some chance an escapee avoided the bullets, sniffer dogs would track him down quickly. Grandpa was proud of his carpentry skills and was eager to pass them on to me. He said I needed a trade, a means of supporting myself. Grandpa knew he had a bad heart. He'd been acting up for a year. The pills the doctor gave him were only forestalling the inevitable. Guidance in the craft of carpentry was about the only thing he felt he could give me. He had no possessions of any value to leave me. To my surprise, when I left school, I discovered I was good at something other than schoolwork. I liked the feel and smell of wood, enjoyed the way I could smooth it, mold it, transform it. Grandpa paid me a wage from his own earnings, and by the time I was 14, I'd saved enough to enable me to seek employment and accommodation elsewhere. But for the time being, I was happy enough living with my grandpa. I'd grown accustomed to the quiet lifestyle outside the prison and the predictable lifestyle within. When the front gates swung open one day to receive a new group of prisoners, like most others, Grandpa and I stopped what we were doing. New arrivals were a diversion. Three handcuffed men surveyed their new home. The eyes of one swept in a wide arc across the exercise yard to the work shed. There's something about the eyes that made me inadvertently take a step back. The man noticed, as if he was used to this reaction, and smirked as a guard led him away. Who's that? I asked. Grandpa always seemed to know something about new arrivals. 
I supposed he got it from the guards. Grandpa shook his head. They call him Mad Luther. Killed two kids, they reckon. Tortured them. He, well, best you don't know the details. He's for the chair. Grandpa went back to working on a table. There were two burials in the months following Mad Luther's incarceration. At the second, we had the grave half dug when Grandpa slumped to his knees, clutching his chest and clawing at a small bottle in his shirt pocket. Pills! His voice was a strangled whisper. I grabbed the bottle and with shaking hands pressed a white tablet onto Grandpa's tongue. I cradled him, rocking him like a baby until the spasm passed. That was a close one, Pop. Scared me half to death. That's the last grave you dig, you hear? He nodded weakly, too ill to protest. He was pushing 80, way too old to be shoveling dirt. I was almost a man and had filled right out. I could easily handle the burials on my own. Luther took to sitting with his back against a wall of the exercise yard opposite the work shed. For months he watched us. I felt the manic eyes boring into me for hours at a time. I wish he'd stop sitting there, staring at us all day long, I complained. Grandpa glanced over his shoulder through the floor-to-ceiling steel mesh, which provided ventilation for the dusty work area. His eyes met and briefly held the dark ones before turning back to his work. Grandpa said, Don't worry about him. He can't do you no harm in here. The mesh was thick enough to ensure the prisoners did not get their hands on carpentry tools. The other three walls were stone and adjoined inner prison walls. Why does he do that? I persisted. Just stare all the time. Grandpa shrugged. Nothing much else to do, I suppose. I tapped Grandpa on the shoulder when I saw Luther get up and wander over. Luther's long fingers curled around the mesh as he pressed his body against it. How's it going, old man? He asked, his mouth twisting into a smile that didn't go anywhere near his eyes. Fine, Grandpa answered. He reached for sandpaper and smoothed some rough edges on a coffin lid. I kept my head down, my eyes averted, and continued to work on shelves the warden had requested. That's a fancy-looking wooden overcoat you're working on. Luther said. He laughed and waited for a response. Grandpa grunted and blew dust off the sanded wood where it had collected in grooves. He told me the ornately carved coffin was for his own burial when the time came. He worked on it whenever he had a spare moment. Its dimensions were far larger than his small frame warranted, but he'd made it that size to allow plenty of room for sculpting. Sculpting was his greatest pleasure, but there was little call for it in a prison. Most items were plain and practical. His favorite subject was angels. A full-length one in flowing robes adorned the lid of his coffin. Her outstretched wings continued down the coffin's sides, and her delicate hands were joined in prayer. The only plain section of timber was the coffin's base. I was glad when Luther finally left us to our work. There was something about the man that made my skin crawl. 
A week later, Grandpa handed me a list. Tell the warden I need to go to town for some supplies tomorrow. As I walked across the exercise yard, I read through the items he had jotted down. It was the usual sort of things. Wood, nails, screws, sandpaper, wood finishing oil. The warden would go over the list and arrange for someone to check off the items when Marcus returned with them. The prison had accounts with stores in town, so there was no need for money to change hands. I was halfway across the yard, when out of the corner of my eye I saw Luther unfold himself from a bench and follow. I quickened my pace, but moments later, Luther grabbed my arm roughly from behind and swung me around. You two come and go as you please, he said. I tried to shake his hand off. So? We just work here. We don't live here. Luther's lips twisted into a contemptuous snarl around an oral graveyard of yellow teeth. Next time you go through those gates to the boneyard, I'm going too. I said, what are you talking about? Let me go. I didn't threaten to call a guard. In a place like Midway, you didn't squeal for help unless someone was waving a knife in your face. Luther tightened his grip. You're going to help me. Next time a body gets planted in one of them coffins, I'm going with it. I stared into the eyes and breathed shallowly to avoid taking in the man's foul breath. A guard had told me what he did to the two children he killed. I swallowed hard as I sensed the terror they must have experienced before death released them. The only ones who go in the coffins are dead people, I pointed out. Luther continued as if I hadn't spoken. I'm getting fried soon. He paused as if he expected this statement to have an impact. I knew there was a room in the prison that housed the electric chair, but I'd never seen it and didn't want to. I've seen how it all works, Luther told me. They put the body in one of your coffins, then you, the old geezer, and the priest take it to the cemetery. No guards. They don't need guards. Pop and I aren't prisoners. Luther quivered with barely suppressed excitement. When the next lowlife dies, you're gonna make sure he's put in that big coffin I seen in the workshed. The fancy one with the angel on it. Then I'm getting in with him, see? You're going to tell your pop you're doing this burial by yourself, so it's just you and the priest. I didn't feel the need to inform Luther that my grandpa wouldn't be doing any more burials. He said, You plant the coffin, then after you've brought the priest back, you make some excuse like you've left something behind and come back and dig me out. If you don't help me, your pop's dead meat. He grabbed the front of my shirt and pulled me forward, then stood beside me and placed his other arm across my shoulders smiling as he did so to make it appear to be a friendly gesture to any watching guards. He jerked his head across the yard to the bench he'd been sitting on earlier, which was now occupied by a thick-set man with muscular tattooed arms folded across his chest. See that fellow over there? He said. If you forget you're supposed to dig me out, he's going to do your pop. Nice and slow-like. You got it? I nodded but I hadn't agreed to anything. I was just showing I understood. Apparently, satisfied that he'd gotten his point across successfully, Luther loosened his grip 
slapped me on the back, and sauntered over to the tattooed man. I made my way to the warden's office to deliver the supply list. When I returned to the work shed, I didn't tell Grandpa about the encounter, fearing his heart may not take it. He might say it was just a half-baked plan anyway, the ravings of a lunatic. He'd pointed out to me more than once that he'd rubbed shoulders with the dregs of society for years and come to no harm. I was aware more than anyone that my grandpa's life revolved around the prison. In his own way, he was happy. If I told the warden about the threat and escape plan, what could he do? The escape plan could be foiled. But if one of Midway's prisoners wanted to get at my grandpa, one way or another, it would happen. The warden might decide that the only way to protect him would be to terminate his employment at the prison. I knew Grandpa's work was his purpose for living, his reason to get up each morning. The warden relied on him as a handyman because he knew the prison inside out and could often fix a minor problem before it became a major one. But it was the carpentry that brought Grandpa a measure of self-respect. His skill was evidenced throughout the prison. The warden had long ago told me the details of his crime, and it didn't matter to me. Nothing mattered, except that my grandpa lived out the rest of his days in peace. He'd paid his debt to society. His heart condition was getting worse. His days were numbered, and I resolved to stay with him until the end. After being written off by his family, he'd taken me in and looked after me as best as he could when it would have been so easy to turn his back and maintain his modest but secure lifestyle. Grandpa needed to continue to work in the prison, and unless I agreed to the plan, that would be impossible. But it would also mean releasing Mad Luther on an unsuspecting public. I couldn't think of a way around that. To buy time, next time Luther approached me, I told him I'd agreed to the plan. I hoped fate would step in and an order would arrive for the man's execution. But appeals had kept some prisoners on death row for years. The months dragged by. Unfortunately for Luther, the inmates remained healthy. I watched him become increasingly impatient. He no longer sat calmly observing as he had before. He took to pacing the yard like a restless animal. His eyes darted here and there and landed on other prisoners so often. I hoped he wouldn't hasten things by providing a body himself. Finally, time ran out for me. There'd been a death in the prison, and I was to handle the burial. The coffin was ready. The sheet-wrapped body was inside. I waited for a guard to pass on the walkway above the exercise yard, then unlocked the steel mesh door of the work shed and signaled Luther. Got the flashlight? He asked as he slipped inside. I handed it over. He said, Watch. Timing was crucial. I gave him the watch. As arranged, we were using the large ornate coffin. It would hold the most air. Luther climbed in next to the corpse. 
Luther said. You got the plan stuck in that thick head of yours. You plant the coffin, bring the chaplain back, then say you forgot something and have to go back. I nodded. I know what to do. Luther tried to adjust his body between the draped corpse and the side of the coffin. There ain't enough room, he complained. Turn the stiff on its side. I gritted my teeth and carefully maneuvered the body so it rested on its shoulder and hip. Luther hunched his shoulders and lay on his back with his arms crossed. He put the flashlight on his chest and slipped the watch onto his wrist, then reached up and grabbed me by the throat and pulled my head down. I shut my eyes as my chin brushed the draped head of the corpse. He said, Just in case you're thinking of not coming back, remember, your pop's dead meat if you don't. Luther pulled a piece of paper from inside his shirt pocket. Open them eyes, you squeamish baby. Apart from a signature, free was the only word written on the note. When you've dug me out, I'm going to post this to my buddy. I've showed it to him. Luther assumed a look of superiority as he revealed how well he'd thought his plan through. He said, it'll have the postmark of a certain city on it. If my buddy don't see it again, real soon-like, he'll know you haven't kept up your end of the bargain. The grip on my throat tightened, and I gagged. This is no bargain. You forced me to do it. Luther released his hold. I reached for the lid. The wooden eyes of the carved angel regarded me impassively. Her wings embraced the coffin as I pushed the lid into place. After the chaplain arrived and changed into funeral garments, I loaded the coffin onto the dray, and our small procession made its way slowly through the front gates. The chaplain walked ahead, reciting from an open prayer book. The horse bowed its head as if with respect for the dead, rather than because of the weight it was pulling. The tattooed man caught my eye as I drove past. A finger across the throat gesture reminded me of his part in Luther's plan. I drilled holes in the lid and sides of the coffin, concealing them in the intricacies of the angel's wings so that Luther would not begin to deplete his oxygen supply until soil covered the whole thing. With the help of prison library books, we'd carefully calculated that there would be 35 minutes of air once the coffin was under the ground. I'd already dug the grave earlier in the day. The task had never unnerved me before, but this was different. The yawning mouth waited. I eased the coffin off the dray and the chaplain helped me lower it on ropes into the ground. It hit the bottom with a soft thud. I pulled up the ropes and filled the hole while the chaplain continued the prayers for the dead. If he wondered why I was in such a hurry, he didn't say anything. When the job was done, we returned to the prison. Luther had felt the shudder of the ropes being dragged from under the coffin. He'd listened to the whomp of the dirt falling on the lid. The shovel loads had come in rapid succession, confirming that I was keeping his part of their deal 
and filling the grave as quickly as possible. Luther wriggled his body to relieve a cramp in his leg, flicking on the flashlight to look at his watch. It surprised him that only two minutes had passed since the dirt had obscured what little light fell through the holes. He went over their calculations again. Six minutes to fill the grave, five minutes to take the chaplain back to the prison, three minutes to return at a quicker pace. That left 21 minutes to complete the hardest part, digging him out. I had told him the grave wouldn't be as deep as usual. Each second dragged like a minute for Luther. Each minute seemed like an hour. Luther flicked on the flashlight again. The day was hot and steamy, and it hastened the decaying process. The odor of the corpse was almost unbearable. He knew he'd only have a limited supply of air, but hadn't figured on it being putrid air. It was so thick he could almost chew it because the corpse was on its side. The covered head faced him. His fidgeting had caused the sheet to slip a little. He could see an ear. He looked at his watch again. Beads of perspiration prickled his forehead. One slid into his eye, making it sting. He wiped it away. He thought that I should be digging him out soon. Any time now. How many minutes to go? Four? Six? Two? Luther's mind was groggy. Though he tried to keep calm and conserve his air, his heartbeat steadily increased. Whomp! Whomp! Like the sound the shovel loads of dirt had made on the coffin lid. Whomp! Whomp! Flashlight on. How long had he been there? Flashlight off. Luther slipped a hand down his trouser pocket and fingered the knife he'd swiped from the kitchen. He'd have no regrets about killing me. He knew he couldn't leave any witnesses, and there'd be an open grave ready and waiting for me. His plan was perfect. He planned to change into my clothes after. They were much the same size. My horse would get him out of the place quickly. The guards in the tower would see the buggy heading toward town, but would assume it was me. It would be hours before anyone missed Luther, or my grandpa. Luther's tattooed friend would ensure that grandpa couldn't raise the alarm when I didn't come back. It would be an easy job. He knew grandpa was too frail to put up any kind of resistance. The note was just Luther's insurance policy to ensure that I dug him out. It would make no difference as far as the grandpa was concerned. Luther had promised his accomplice he'd rustle up a few friends, call in some favors, and come back and spring him from jail. He smiled to himself. He knew some guys were just plain gullible. Luther thought he could hear the shovel any minute. He was sure the time was close. It was getting hard to breathe. He couldn't think straight. Luther started to wonder where I was. He was a man who was rarely afraid but was well acquainted with fear. He fed voraciously off the terror he could create in others and thrived on the power it gave him. But now, in the overwhelming silence of the coffin, he heard and felt fear as it snarled at him and nipped at his heels. Luther had intended to make my death a quick one 
as a thank you for my help. One slice across the throat was what he had planned for me. But for the time he spent waiting in fear, he started planning a slow and painful death for me. Prolonged. The idea excited him. Luther tasted the tang of saliva at the back of his mouth and felt the rush of adrenaline that always accompanied such thoughts. And as he waited, I pulled up at the prison gates with the chaplain. The chaplain asked, You're sure about this? Yes, I'm sure, I replied. I've got money saved. He said, Well, if you need any help, just let me know. I smiled. Thanks. I'll do that. I turned the buggy away from the prison gates, and with a flick of the reins, urged the horse onto the road. I would keep going until I reached the nearest city. Perhaps I'd go further. I didn't know yet. But it was time to strike out on my own. I told the warden this burial would be my last job at the prison. He had understood and had given me a good reference. Luther strained to hear any sound above the thudding of his heart. He turned on his flashlight again and tried to focus on his watch. His vision would have been blurry by that point. He wouldn't be able to remember how many minutes had passed anyway. And I bet he muttered a stream of oaths and cursed me, using up what precious little oxygen he had left. To him, my fate was sealed. I was as dead as the stinking, putrid, rotting body beside him. As Luther pounded on the lid of the coffin, his frenzied movements knocked the sheet from the head of the corpse. And my grandpa, Marcus Crowley's vacant eyes, stared back at him. Angel Coffin was written by Catherine England. Narrated by Nate DeFort. For more stories like these, check us out on Patreon. Just click the link in our show notes. And while you're there, you can find links for the writers and guest performers of today's stories. Bridget Howard is waiting for you. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on the 13th.